0: Welcome to the APL NextEd Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL NextEd, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the APL NextEd Minipod. We're delighted to be with you again. Happy new year, happy 2022. It's been a few weeks since we were all together last and I hope your new year is off to a tremendous start. As many of you know, we use this time to get to know extraordinary leaders, particularly in the area of academic affairs and academic administration uh, at institutions of higher learning. And we like to hear from these folks who are really doing the integral insider sort of often unnoticed work that really makes the academic affairs engine turn Uh, and today is no exception Uh, we have with us an honoree who has received our annual outstanding women leading in academics award janet randerson and i'll tell you a little bit about janet uh, in her bio in just a moment but i want to first welcome her to
2: the podcast so welcome janet Thank you, Kathleen, it's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to talk with you about um, what we can do to help academic affairs across higher education. Well, we're really excited to hear what you have
1: to say and and learn uh, some of the things that have served you well uh, over the course of your career doing this important work. Janet has served in uh, education, higher education academic administration since 2006, and she is currently the Director of Faculty Development at Colorado Christian University. Uh, She has over a decade of online teaching experience, plus has been an online learner herself, which we wanna hear all about. Janet has a deep understanding of what both the faculty needs are and the learners needs are having served in positions where she's, in both of those roles. This experience informs her approach to faculty development initiatives and building smarter higher education business practices. Uh, Janet can tell us a little bit about her work on a doctoral degree in higher education administration. She holds a master's of business administration and is well versed in organizational management and corporate training. So Let's jump right in and hear a little bit about some of this uh, information that comes out of your bio, which is, I think, just so interesting and something that I think we don't see enough of in higher education. And that is people who are really doing particular kinds of work, having the opportunity to create strategy and tactics around things like the things you're speaking about here best practices, not only in management, but also thinking about how to support and prepare faculty because you're serving as a, as a faculty and um, on the other side of the aisle, if you will, or other side of the platform um, working as a student. So would love to hear a little bit about how this is shaping your goals uh, at CCU and, and the work that you're doing in your administrative role.
2: Yeah, I would say that for sure, um, my experiences as um, across the universities that I've worked in, so I've had three different organizations that I worked in, and each time the culture of that organization uh, does a little bit more to shape who I am and the approach that I take in that organization to meet the needs of that particular context. So what we're doing at Colorado Christian University right now is, of course, tremendous growth in online education. I've been specializing in online education, actually, since I started all the way back in 2006. Um, And what I think is the most important part about that really has been my experience as an adult student uh, Mm -hmm. to come back into the classroom and to understand that the faculty member is the classroom, really, in an online setting. The faculty member takes... The students through a journey in that classroom time and sets the tone for the learning environment that they'll experience. It's a a privilege to work with faculty to help them understand that and to create that context in a really healthy way. That's kind of um, very bold and also, I think, very telling
1: and not something you hear a lot A few words that you shared in in your explanation there, and that is that the faculty is the classroom, you know, in the online context, particularly. I think, you know, we've talked many times and as a part of this podcast, we've had many conversations with leaders who share my perspective that, you know, until we really begin to focus on those who are delivering our primary product as institutions of higher learning, learning, <laughs> um, until we begin to focus on um, the teachers and all of the resources, administrators, staff that uh, faculty have at their disposal to, to use to um, enhance their teaching or to support them in their teaching or in their uh, other responsibilities as faculty. You know, we're really not going to have, be leveraging the full full set of resources that are available. And so it's just really interesting to me that you're talking about in a very um, matter of fact way, as a, from a student's perspective, um, how important the faculty member is in that learning journey, and love for you to expound a little bit on that.
2: Sure, I think we've all had the um, the experience that we say shaped us, that it was maybe a negative experience, and I think that um, when I was an adult learner and I was juggling a full time job, teenagers still at home a husband with a job that took him out of the out of the home often he was traveling quite a bit with his work and here i was trying for the first time in over 20 years to complete a degree so as a full-time learner i was learning all kinds of new technologies and a way of doing a lear- of learning that required me to think differently mm-hmm. and when we encounter that kind of stress those different pressures that are on us i think we're shaped almost as though And we think about how God creates diamonds, um, all that pressure and heat that's on that particular carbon molecule. uh, It really did shape me into a different person, a different kind of thinker. And when I encountered faculty members who didn't um, who couldn't quite meet the need of a quick response in the online classroom um, where I was waiting, for example, for feedback on an assignment that then made it so that I couldn't I didn't feel like I could be successful on my next assignment it really did raise, amp up the level of anxiety in the classroom. Hmm. And we know from the way that the brain works, that when you're in that state of anxiety, you really cannot be the best learner. You're really operating from a different part of the brain that doesn't allow you to have the maximum opportunity to learn.
1: I mean, fascinating, fascinating work that we, and uh, understanding that I think we intuitively know, but maybe doesn't get spoken often enough, or maybe as faculty, we're not reminded enough, or maybe our institutions aren't taking the time and care to make sure that the faculty have the resources to also be in that point of, you know, not being anxious and not being full of fear and trepidation and, and that they are fully comfortable in, you know, the teaching that they need to do. And so I think it's a really interesting perspective that you have certainly, being an adult learner and at the same time, you know, being in a role where you're training faculty and certainly where you are now at CCU, it's reaped huge dividends. I mean, the rate of growth of your online adult learning program, your, I call it CAGS, I think, College of Undergraduate or College of Adult and Graduate Studies. Um, tell us a little bit about how you're particularly meeting the needs of and training um, faculty in in the CAGS school to make sure that faculty do understand things
2: like the scenario you just presented that you experienced yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a number of steps that we take to make sure that faculty are equipped before they go to our classroom. So we have an orientation course. We just redesigned it, as a matter of fact. Um, So we have the faculty join up with an instructional coach and they have a time of orientation. They take a self-paced orientation course that costs them about two to three hours of time to go through some basics of our mission and our vision and our approach to online learning. And they then meet up with this coach. The coach spends time with them going through the logistics of technology and getting their their accounts set up and making sure that they have all the technical tools that they need. Once they go through that orientation, then we put them, we ask them to take a couple of little badges that we use. One of them, of course, is the federally required Title IX badge. But then we also have another one that takes them through our policies and procedures. So beginning with the mission and the vision of the university and creating that context for what our passion is and how to meet that, and then giving them the technology tools Um, to be able to use library resources, log on to our LMS appropriately. And then what are the requirements? We have a faculty expectations checklist that we set up for them. We provide that to them at the beginning of each course. And then once they have gone through this orientation program and they're assigned to their very first course, you know, the lag in academic affairs between the time when you hire someone to the time they might be in their first classroom could be a semester or more. Mm -hmm. Because it takes a while for that academic cycle to work its way through and for the course to be offered again. So you might have a a new instructor who came to your faculty Mm -hmm. pool six months ago and is now in their very first classroom. They've been through their orientation six months ago, Mm -hmm. um, and now here they are in the classroom. So we now partner them with a mentor, someone from that subject matter area who walks alongside them through their very first course and then reports back to our department to let us know, how we're um, how they're doing in the classroom and what additional professional development goals we might want to set with them as they're going forward.
1: That's great. I mean, I don't know if you can reflect similarly on your first teaching experiences, but I certainly would have benefited and really loved having the support and the feedback from a mentor like that in the classroom with me. I, where we were, I I did was teaching in a kind of a shared curriculum uh, freshman. Program. So there was a cohort that we met with periodically that I could get feedback from, but that's a, that's a hard first year uh, of teaching. Um, you know, even if you've done some student teaching, or even if you've done some teaching as a teaching assistant or graduate student, you know, kind of having your own class and, and particularly given the times we're living in, um, where everyone's sort of trying to figure it out. It, it seems like a, an incredible resource that you're providing to the faculty.
2: Yeah, it's worth the investment. I think the reason why we have um, the ability to retain students into our classroom is because we really focus on uh, engagement with the learner. So a couple of initiatives that we started this past year, for example, are in an online classroom. Now we ask the instructor to post a video recording of their bio. It used to be a narrative that they Mm -hmm. would just type into a space, but now we ask them to make a video recording. We provided them with a really convenient software to be able to do those recordings and then we also ask them to in their office hours, uh, we ask them to meet with their students in an open format like this one in a yep. Zoom meeting. Yep. Um, we, and you know, students aren't necessarily all wanting to, to have that face to face environment with a faculty member. But those who do take advantage of face to face or Zoom related um, office hours are finding that it's incredibly helpful. Not only do they get the time with their faculty member, but some of these individuals that the the faculty are opening up the office hours to let multiple students in at a time. So now the peers get to interact with one another in a Zoom-like setting as well. And we're finding that has has some great rewards.
1: That's really, I just heard, I was at ACE, the conference um, in San Diego this weekend, and just actually talked to a faculty member who's um, teaching in an IR program. And she was saying the same thing, that she's doing her office hours kind of you know waiting in a zoom room and she's having a lot of students show up she said more than when she had an office kind of in the basement of some remote building as a, you know a junior faculty member so yeah. pretty exciting to hear that everybody's sort of adapting to this new way of learning and understanding that it is in these sometimes informal exchanges that a lot of learning and a lot of relationship building happens between the student and the uh, the students and the faculty um, yeah.
2: Kathleen, I wanted to mention that one of the challenges that we find ourselves in in this phase of academia where there's so much going to online is that we need to spend time, and we do frequently spend time, thinking about what was our primary goal? Um, what is our primary format? What are the things that we can't give up in our process of doing this? Because if we, if we just followed trends cultural trends and didn't stick to what we know has worked and what our primary model is. Right. And our primary model is that adult working learner, the person who is already time challenged. If we do too much to synchronize our classroom, we now lose that audience. And right. that's who we're here to serve as the adult learner and uh, right. uh, our adult and graduate studies program.
1: Yeah. it's. I think it's just terrific how focused you are at making sure that the institutional message, uh, mission and vision and goals are integrated, but also understanding that this is a unique learner with you know unique needs. Um, and I think a lot of traditional schools particularly sort of lost this. I mean, I worked in a college of adult scholars and graduate programs and you know, they, the curriculum committee still wanted the adult learners to come to campus to take a six-week badminton course as a part of their general education, you know, to earn the bachelor's degree because that's what in residence 18-year-old students needed to do. And they didn't, mm. you know, and so there was just a real lack of understanding of the market that we were trying to serve, the students we were trying to serve, and, you know, to apply the same sorts of standards to them. I mean, obviously the standards need to be high and, and um, equivalent, but sometimes they're different, right? I mean, maybe you can substitute a health and nutrition course for a, you know, a badminton course, so somebody can do that remotely or something. So, you know, mm-hmm. keeping this in mind, I think is is going to be key in the future.
2: Yeah, I think any organization that wants to be successful and really find good strength and buy-in citizen-like behaviors from their faculty, their staff, and even their learners really has to stay true to that mission and stay right on point with that and not lose sight of why they do what they do.
1: Well, again, I'm excited about the success that you're experiencing at CCU and your adult learners programs. And you guys are doing everything uh, from undergraduate work all the way through very serious research oriented doctoral work, which is, uh, you know, a huge accomplishment. We started the conversation really talking about this experience that you've had being both a student and a faculty member and an administrator who supports faculty and how those roles being a being uh, participating at your institution as a learner and as a faculty member and as somebody who is supporting faculty is really informing those other roles and the first thing we had kind of wanted to talk about was this what education or experiences prepared you most for the role and it really does seem like it's having that sort of shared role and being Literally in the you know in the shoes of the learner, being in the shoes of a faculty member, being in the shoes of an academic administrator who supports faculty. Would you agree that that's the most significant sort of education or experience that um, has shaped how you're working and what you're doing?
2: Yes, certainly. My education laid the foundation for where I could put some of these you know put up some pillars. And then I, I also think that one of the keys to what helped me was to have some folk who gave me the opportunity to have a, a backstage pass really to what the inner workings of academia are. Mm-hmm. So without those leaders who believed in me mm-hmm. and uh, let me see into the depths, even beyond my, my roles at the time, right. and let me see that back, that backstage area of academia, when I th- when I think about how it was for me to attend my first HLC conference, for example, and to be able to sit around the table with folk like you, vendors, to talk to vendors and to talk to other um, academic officers in, in their organizations. And mostly, I really think one of the things that shaped me the most in that time period was what failures they had had or what things that they had had that their lessons learned Mm-hmm. um, to be able to find out what didn't work <laughs> so that we weren't repeating the same things in our organization. We could kind of leap over those errors and move into, uh, try new things. So yeah. I would yeah. say my education, yeah. having a backstage pass, and then also of course, this very rich adult experience as a learner. That's really neat.
1: So you talked about lessons learned and that's really the next question we were going to get at. Cause I think we'll have a lot of younger folks who who may be aspiring to a role like yours, uh, listening in, and how humble and lovely that you actually have the humility to go to a conference and to um, not only hear about lessons learned from those who have gone before, but to actually believe that this is something you ought to pay attention to. I think so many leaders sort of put themselves particularly on a pedestal and particularly with the success mm-hmm. that you've had in increasing enrollments that, you know, oh, well, that won't happen to us or, you know, we've got that figured out. But I think when you are um, a shrewd leader, uh, you are listening to uh, some of the failures and pitfalls of those who have come before and making sure that you're doing things a little bit differently. So, um, you know, I think that th- that's the way to lead is to, is to have your eyes and ears open and to, to make sure that you are not repeating lessons that somebody else learned. Um, right. But in terms of your own sort of personal lessons learned, over your time, over the course of your working in academic affairs, you know, if you were talking to a 30-year-old woman who, you know, wanted to see herself in a role like yours, what would you say are some of those important lessons learned
2: that might help her avoid some pitfalls? Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, I have a daughter who actually, actually followed in my footsteps into (laughs) academia so I actually had to give this advice to her and uh, one of the things that I felt like was really important for my development and for the way I could have a common language in academia was really this knowledge about assessment. How does assessment work? Assessment really drives almost every decision that we make across our organizations. How we train our faculty, how we monitor our classrooms, how we build our courses, how we handle the student all the way from the beginning of their uh, step into the university all the way to the end, to what they do with their degree. That's all something of interest in our assessment and our accreditation, accrediting bodies. So I would say one of the first pieces of advice I would give to someone, male or female, wanting to get Mm -hmm. into academia, understand who your creditors are, understand those guidelines, and then start talking with people about them and how it shapes your organization And the decisions, the business decisions that have to be made. You know, one of the things that I think is kind of unique about where I'm at is I I I have an undergraduate degree in leadership and organizational management. Then my master's degree came in and I actually developed a my thesis for my master's was a faculty development program. Mm -hmm. Then I got to put it in place in one of my organizations. So I actually got to build something and put it into place and watch how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I think when we can have that opportunity to have a shared language with our leaders that I got through the assessment process and then bringing that business aspect of it in. Now I was talking on the same plane that they were. They Mm -hmm. understood that I knew what the business impact was, what the cost of these things was, and then how to look for efficiencies. So Mm -hmm. in academia today, there is a real challenge to keep costs low and to look for opportunities for other streams of income, Mm -hmm. other ways or other streams of revenue having the ability to talk to your leaders and a shared language, I think would be really important for uh, uh, someone trying to get into academia today.
1: And your suggestion of getting involved in your accreditation is a great one. A lot of these accrediting bodies have programs. They'll even take people who are aspiring to do work at the institutions like this through Um, their conferences typically have a lot of like kind of one-on-one programs for Beginning to initiate someone into an understanding of what goes into accreditation, but you're exactly right. I mean, we talk often about mission and values, and 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 those I think are very much part and parcel of what we're having to show as outcomes um, for compliance to be accredited. But I think uh, your points are very good in that you know there is sort of a you called it back end or you know behind the stage sort of set of decisions that are being made with these, certainly the mission and accreditation and costs being taken into consideration. And I think, you know, very often those who are on the other side, because of the way a lot of higher education is, has traditionally been structured, you know, they're not, they, they there isn't a, a common language that they're sharing, right? I mean, so you have maybe faculty thinking about what the institution's doing with one set of language and even one set of perspectives, and then you have, you know, maybe the operators and, and folks thinking about it in a different way. It'd be interesting to think about how we even bring, you know, not only aspiring new academic leaders, but even the whole academic team together, speaking the same language and being sort of on the same page in terms of what their expectations are and, and, and how all of those connect to the mission and vision and, and what's being assessed.
2: I agree. I agree. The challenges are are unique. I mean, the the higher education environment is definitely changing and morphing and uh, keeping up with that pace of change can be quite challenging. One of the uh, reads that I recently had my team do was, uh, you may have heard of it, Todd Bolsinger wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he talks a lot about adaptability, being able to adapt to your changing environment. And um, I worked through this with my team. And we are finding that that is another key element of what we have to do every day is to be adaptable. And that did mean, you know, I I started in this role at CCU just a year ago and through this past year, I started, (laughs) interestingly, I I took the job and said, I'm not gonna do anything for the first year, no changes. I'm just gonna observe and take notes. Well. <laughs> mm-hmm. We I did not stick to that. Uh, we needed to move quickly into adapting to the post what we call now the post-coronial world of academia and how that has changed the learner, how it has changed the faculty approach, and really how we need to in academia be able to leave behind our canoes, as mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark did when they came across the Rocky Mountains in in their little in their endeavor to the find the Northwest Passage that's laid out for us in that book from Bolsinger. But we had to learn, you know, what what could we keep and what do we have to let let go of? Um, so it's mm-hmm. been a, a whirlwind year. Um, mm-hmm. And we think we're going to stabilize this year through the use of um, APL to help yeah. us get our record keeping, <laughs> okay. yeah. our record keeping under control. That's our next big move. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you for the little plug there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's certainly I think and this kind of leads into the next question around biggest changes that you're observing or experiencing kind of in this, uh, I like your, I like your term, uh, (laughs) Mm post-coronavirus or coronial -coronial Mm post-coronial higher higher education. I mean, certainly even coming from ACE, uh, just a completely different set of priorities. I mean, everything, everyone's talking about mental health and uh, fatigue and how to retain faculty, staff, and administrators, not just students. And, how do the leaders take care of themselves, but also be the source of strength and inspiration and resource that the faculty, staff, and administrators need. And so lots of conversations about this and even how this impacts, you know, it's the changing role of the faculty as it relates to uh, the impact that these last several years have had on students. And you know, do you do, do you do the kind, do you take care of faculty, uh, these qu- kinds of student needs through faculty or advisors? You know, something that we haven't talked about for a long time, you know, it was a decade or 15 years ago or, or, or so that we started to see professional advisors coming on the scene. Um, now it's a conversation. How are we, how are we going to divide up those responsibilities around the more important, but maybe softer skills that come with coaching and inspiring and, you know, maybe even being the hand to hold or the voice to listen to move someone to professional resources if needed in a a mental health context. So um, it does seem like there's a lot of conversation at all kinds of schools um, with all kinds of stakeholders about a whole new set of priorities that have emerged, you know, in this environment. Love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, certainly we are not immune to that at CCU. Uh, I had a meeting this morning, as a matter of fact, with the director of our um, Master of Arts in Counseling program and the ability to hire qualified folk to teach, even especially online or I'm sorry, in seat. So online, not quite as challenging, but still challenging. But certainly folk who want to teach in our in seat classrooms again, they all got very used to teaching and being uh, their interactions being all digital. And now we're asking, hey, who wants to teach on campus again? We have a, a program where they need to come onto residency for a time period and to get people right. to come onto campus is a challenge. So, you know, we look at all kinds of things to be able to incentivize um, a labor force to come into the new world, the post colonial world of working, whether it's uh, on campus or online. Um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge.
1: So interesting because, I mean, we were having to incentivize Ten years ago to get faculty to teach online and now you're in, having to incentivize you know schools are having to incentivize to bring faculty back to face-to-face teaching
2: what a switch right i mean remember the do you remember the years when online online courses weren't even considered valid yeah. they didn't have validated uh, enough academic rigor or accountability to be considered really valid educational process and now here we are saying oh no we've proven ourselves we've done a good job of proving that um, online learning is a valid source of learning people acquire knowledge and take their practical skills into the workplace through an online education um, but yeah now here we are trying to say hey come back in campus we want to see you <laughs> <laughs> oh um, yeah, yeah we're doing we're doing more and more to help, Cross that bridge into the post uh, coronial world that we're talking about now. Um, the labor force is certainly part of it, but we, you know, one of the things about my doctoral work that I'm I'm studying now is this: in, the impact on of emotional intelligence and how you tie emotional intelligence to self-efficacy in the teaching environment, mm-hmm. and what that looks like to be able to say, does Does emotional intelligence or emotional health in in our in our headspace, give us the ability to overcome those challenges of belief. Do I believe I can be successful in this environment? Which mm-hmm. one is overriding which? The mm-hmm. belief overrides the emotional intelligence, or does the emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. or um, you know, drive the belief system? So it's important for us as administrators and leaders to understand the ability for a faculty member or a learner, even the learner, to know themselves, to take mm-hmm. the time to know who they are. Mm-hmm. Take the Myers Briggs right. um, or an Enneagram personality exam. Um, maybe even spend some time with uh, the Strength Finders, the Clifton's yep. Strength Finders, and use those inf- pieces of information to know who you are and what you need to be able to recharge, refresh, and get yourself back into the game in a really um, powerful way. I think those yeah. are really good tools.
1: That's really neat. I, it is exciting in some ways to see education as an industry, but also the individuals who deliver and who take advantage of educational opportunities as students, talking about reflection, you know, talk, that's really what you're talking about. And and it's really a kind of a classical concept in higher education, this idea of, of reflection. And I love what you said about providing or encouraging faculty, staff, and administrators, you know, reflect on do some self-assessment, you know, reflect on why you feel the way you feel and, you know, see where some of these things lead you and guide you. And we've just, um, I think higher ed very much took its lead in terms of culture and so forth, very often from, from the larger American culture, which was, you know, not some, uh, not a culture that of late really um, valued reflection. And so -hmm. it's interesting to see this, this kind of turn back to, We're using technology more, but we're also recognizing that some of these more classical approaches to education and even living and thriving are more important maybe than we thought.
2: Well, or yeah, because they don't really feed into this whole, we don't think anyway, we haven't previously thought that these elements would feed into productivity or into the bottom line. But now we know that that without I, our our CFO recently made a decision about some uh, in response to the post post COVID era. Mm-hmm. Um, made a decision. He said, "I want to take care of the people because without the people, there's nothing else to take care of. Mm-hmm. You don't take care of your people. There's nothing else That's to right. take care of. You have to have people here doing the work. And so when we can convey to our environment or to our constituents that they are of value and that." um We want to work with what they, what their gifts and talents and fully exploit those gifts and talents for their glorification and for their edification and gives them meaning in the workplace. Yeah. I think that we foster then more of a citizen-like behavior Mm -hmm. and a culture within the organization, organizational culture that does keep people moving forward despite adversity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, it's interest that you know. Also interesting to see higher ed really as an industry for the first time having to think about these things. I mean, this has always been something the other, you know, for profit or even folks outside of education who are who are doing business enterprise have had to think about. Right? I mean, how do I? It, it's very expensive. Higher ed's now learning to. Um, you know, find that person, bring them on, help them understand your mission and your vision, make sure that they're adequately prepared, you know, allow them to build their own informal support network and support. I mean, it's just a very large proposition to bring on new people. And so, you know, the world has, I think, long recognized in a, in, in a broader business context that figure out how to keep your great people, you know, you, you, understand their aptitudes, you move them around, you're, you're trying to figure out who best can solve problems that are on the horizon on your own team, what skills are they going to need? What, what sort of training might they need to be prepared to do the work that's coming a year or two down the, you know, down the road. Um, but it's not something that, you know, higher ed really had to do much um, mm-hmm. until, till this post COVID era. And
2: so, Lots to learn. <laughs> yeah, always, always. And that's the that's the joy of being in academia, right? It's always changing. And we always have the the mindset of being a continual learner or a lifelong learner. And um, you know, that's another thing that I think that as we're looking at how to be successful in academic affairs, just understanding that constantly adapting and being a learner and surrounding yourself with people who have alternate perspectives is a really important part of being able to speak the language of your leaders, be able to make good fiscal decisions and still stay true to your mission, even amidst all this change that's taking place. One of the leaders that um, I had in one of my organizations that I worked for kind of gave us as a team this vision of being in the ocean and then um, finding the Gulf Stream. And you know, when you get into that Gulf Stream, if you look at the history and how they use that to create efficiency in moving goods and services, goods around our nation, it's it's really true that if we can find that space, that little sweet spot that we can stay strong in our mental health, bring our full gifts and talents to our employment space, and then find meaning through that work. I think yeah. we really do ourselves and our organizations a big service. For sure, for sure.
1: Well, it's been really exciting to talk with you as we as we close. And again, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. And we are thrilled to be able to honor you this year. You've got some surprises coming your, your direction. Oh, um, and you're in really good company this year. The two other women that we have awarded this annual award are, are like you. They've really hit that sweet spot. They're in that flow. They're in that Gulf Stream. I mean, they are using all of their gifts and talents and experiences in an outlet uh, where they're able to share their passion and, and really do things in a way that I think is gonna be highly impactful. Um, and it gets really exciting to think about when folks like you are in positions like this and the impact that they can have at organizations and how that just ripples out. So congratulations. And, oh,
2: thank you. and, and
1: we appreciate all the commitment and work that you've done to serve your students. Um, as we close out here, is there any one particular set of advice or counsel that you would offer someone getting started? And you said you you did this with your daughter. Um, you kind of pointed her in into some to some resources to learn some lessons uh, about culture and language and so forth. Is there a single sort of piece of advice or counsel though that you would share
2: uh, with someone just getting started yeah. in higher education? of beyond the conferences and beyond the education piece. And, you know, I would say that the one big takeaway that I have in the organizations that I've been in and just knowing myself, getting to know myself better, is that the most important thing that I have around me is the people who are around me. So mm. staying connected with them and then really just being a person of humility. So mm. that that I think humility is really an important part of being a learner. Mm. When you understand that you don't understand everything. And you ask good questions and try to inquire into um, situations rather than assume that you know things, setting your assumptions aside and really just being humble enough to ask good questions and to not have to have all the answers all the time. I think that you you
1: are spot on. I mean, I I think how do you learn without humility, right? I mean, because there's a certain to even open your mind for learning, you have to say, I don't know. And, you know, this is another sort of cultural thing I think that we see a lot uh, with kind of the old way higher ed was done and even students you know it's shameful to say you don't know somebody know something if you're a PhD in a particular field or if you're the faculty member or even if you're a senior in a program as a student like there's almost this sort of shame that comes with saying I don't know but that's the beginning of learning is to allow yourself to be humble and to have that sort of humility that lets you listen to other perspectives, you know, of those people that are different that you're talking about surrounding yourself with, but also lets you sort of get beyond a belief that, you know, you know, it all you're you're at a certain level, therefore, you know, it all, or you, you, mm. it's not acceptable for you to have questions. And so I love that concept of being a, a lifelong learner, being humble and exercising humility so that you can continue to learn
2: it's well exercise. certainly in in my workplace i have plenty of opportunities to be reminded that Me i don't too. know everything <laughs> Me too, every day exactly every day every yeah. day
1: well, and it makes it us better a joy to be with you and great <laughs> to know you over these last years and we're really excited to honor you and um we will close out now. I'm going to uh, let the audience know that you can go to uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio to hear the APL Mini Pods. Uh, we release a new es- uh, episode about every two weeks, both in a podcast format and in a video comment. And you are welcome to learn from our guests and Either format, please visit APLNextEd.com slash podcast to, uh, to access the full library of mini pod episodes and to hear uh, all the wonderful things that Janet has shared with us today. Please share uh, what you hear um, and what might be valuable to those you find in your own networks. Thank you for joining us. And, and thank you, Janet, for joining us. It's, a, again, just such an honor and joy to be with you today and to honor you. And um, so grateful for our friendship and, and the time that we've gotten to um, work with each other over these last several years. So thank you. Look forward to much more of it. And thank yeah. you for
2: this opportunity. It truly is an honor. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest, and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL NextEd Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL NextEd Minipod is brought to you by APL NextEd, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL NextEd is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com.